Hello, and welcome to another episode of Balanced Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to reintroduce to you now. Dr. Mickey Bendor is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out Dr. Bendor's first appearance on episode 77 of Balanced Body Radio, which is one of the most popular episodes that we have ever recorded. Dr. Mickey Bendor is a paleoanthropologist researching the association between our human diet during the Paleolithic and human evolution. He specializes in understanding the period of our evolution known as the Stone Age. He retired from his successful career as an economist at age 52 to pursue his passion for our species and got his PhD in archaeology from the University of Tel Aviv. He also has a bachelor's degree in economics and a master's degree in business administration. He has released several studies, including his fantastic and critically acclaimed paper called Man the Fat Hunter. He runs two blogs, one in Hebrew with over 250 posts, and one in English. You can find Dr. Bendor and his blog at www.paleostyle.com and also on Twitter at BendorMickey. Dr. Mickey Bendor, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you back to Boundless Body Radio. Well, Sam here. Pleasure to be back. It's such an honor to have you. Um, we ended the last conversation by saying that, you know, you don't really tend to slow down ever and take a break. And you certainly have been very busy since our last conversation, haven't you? I guess I, you know, I uh, I have the all the facilities here. And that's what one needs nowadays, just uh, uh, strong computers and, uh, you know, imagination and uh, motivation, and I have all of them, so. Yes, you do. Enough motivation that you really legitimately left your career to pursue this uh, pretty late in the game. Can you talk about why you were so adamant about doing that? Well, I first of all, I left. I didn't leave to do that. I just left. I had enough uh, at age 52. I hate authority. I had to be they told what to do, and I had to tell other people what to do. So I really didn't enjoy my work that much. Uh, I came, my, my last job was like sitting in a board of directors and uh, telling the um, general manager what to do or trying to tell the general manager what to do. He would never do that. Uh, so it, it was just, uh, I felt that there's no no real substance for me behind it. And uh, I left, I just left because I just wanted to do something else. I, I didn't know what I, I will do. Wow, wow, that's really amazing. And this, yeah. and then you ended up and, deciding to pursue this. Yeah, because I loved uh, hunter-gatherers uh, since I was in uh, university actually. And I had a great admiration for them. And I always thought that we are uh, actually, hunter-gatherers in a modern environment, and uh, that uh, sort of template never left me. So, when I had the opportunity to go to university in Tel Aviv, I found out that in the uh, Department of Archaeology, there are two uh, professors that uh, teach, you know, prehistory, and prehistory really is about how hunter-gatherers live. So I went there. And uh, that's when I got into the, you know, more seriously into it. Uh, They found uh, some teeth of uh, a hominin that was not supposed to be be in the the site that they were digging. And I was able to explain why this uh, hominin, which is much closer to Homo sapiens, 
it was founder, then everybody believed. So, and then we wrote the paper and then the, they told me, why don't you do a PhD? So I went and did the PhD, et cetera, et cetera. So now I am, and, and I had this uh, sense of mission because uh, at the time in Israel, there was nobody promoting paleo and uh, nutrition. And I thought that I will do it. That's why I opened the Hebrew uh, blog. And, uh, but I thought I'll do it professionally and I, I will get as much credit as I can. That's why I did the PhD, which will give me the credit. So everything was kind of a mission. Uh, and of course it gave meaning to my life as well. So, so that was a fortunate to have found that subject. Yeah, that's so fascinating. It's such an interesting thing when we talk about paleo and, you know, most people know paleo as like the paleo diet and we make assumptions based on what we think that was. So, so one of the things I hear all the time is like the paleo diet includes lots of nuts and seeds and lots of vegetables along with meat. And that, that always just, uh, I don't, I don't know about that one. I don't, I don't like it when people explain that. I would love to know some of the things you've learned along the way as you've been investigating our human evolution, as far as where we need to get our nutrition from. Yeah, that, that was my specialization. I specialized in that, in, in trying to understand what people ate. And uh, my conclusion, very, very simply, is that they ate as, as much meat as they could and much fat, as much fat, fatty meat as they could. Uh, they also ate some plants, but I don't think that plant, and that's my, my conclusion from you know everything that I learned, is that I don't think the plant played a very important part of the nutrition. Although it was, you know, there are times that you have plenty of berries around and uh, sometimes, so, so they definitely ate plants. There's no, there's no question about it, but they ate plants that didn't need a lot of preparation. Uh, they ate, uh, you know, fruits, and tubers that didn't need preparation. Some of the tubers have less, uh, you know, less uh, poisons than others, etc. So they they ate those. Uh, that my that's my conclusion. That if you if you want to be close, or if you believe, if you accept this the template, uh, you want to eat as much meat as you can and as much fatty meat as you can. Yeah, that's beautiful. The thing I love about your work is it is unifying across so many different disciplines. It makes sense nutritionally. It makes sense, you know, location-wise, where we came from. It makes sense in the body and the anatomy and how, you know, we have the large intestine, small intestine, the the stomach is city. We could go on and on, and we talked about this at length last time, but when I hear your ideas about evolution, they check so many boxes, and when I hear other people's, it's almost like they'll say something, and then I'll have like 10 more questions, like, okay, that, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And and so so I, I really appreciate you approached it in a way that that covers all the different bases. Yeah, you see the, the sad part is that uh, archaeologists or paleoanthropologists cannot tell you from the data that they are dealing with what was the what were the quantities the relative quantities 
They can tell you what people ate, and they can tell you, let's say, from some areas in the last 50,000 years, that the stable isotopes so show that they were carnivores. Uh, this is uh, indisputable, I think. But uh, that's, that uh, method goes back only 50,000 years, and humans go back 2 million years. So, so really, if you want to find quantitative uh, ratios, you have to go to other areas. It's not, it's not in the archaeological record. Because what archaeologists do is just dig and find bones and find sometimes seeds. Uh, you know, sometimes they find uh, marks of uh, wood working with the stone tools. Uh, sometimes they find other, so, so yeah, they find in, in the teeth, for instance, uh, they find the uh, uh, remnants of, uh, of uh, plant food. So they can eat, they can say, yes, they ate. And this makes sense. I mean, why wouldn't they? Uh, but how much that is difficult. And that's almost impossible. So what people, what they used to do, paleontopologists is go back to hunter-gatherers of today. It says, oh, look, in Africa, we have this tree with uh, this uh, Hadza tribe that lives very close to uh, where the first humans were found. So it must be, if he eats 90% meat, then that's the, that's the quantity. That's the quantity, but that's not. Uh, it just uh, I don't I don't want to say stupid, but it's it just don't make sense. It's not the same environment. It's not the same technology. Uh, these people speak two languages because they have neighbors that are uh, farmers. Uh, you know they're so involved. They use they use uh, uh, they use iron. You know iron. <laughs> In their uh, in their uh, spears and and in their arrows, that's ah, crazy. And they cook with the utensils. So I mean, the whole thing is crazy to say that you can draw an analogy from this Hadza to one and a half million years ago is absolutely, uh, you know, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. It doesn't make sense at all. Yeah, well, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was listening specifically to an interview that you gave on a different podcast. Um, I believe it was called the Live Damn Well podcast. Really entertaining. I really enjoy it. And he, after he interviewed you, also interviewed um, uh, somebody that, that focused on how we evolved and, and dentition. Basically, they're looking at the teeth and scratch marks and whatever to see how we evolved and the things we ate there. And he conceded as well that, yes, we're omnivores, but but when the, the host pushed back against him and said, like, you know, what do you what do you have to say when if you kill an animal you get you know thousands and thousands and thousands of calories that can keep a tribe alive for a very very long time versus if you're eating plants you know nu nutritionally you're you're going to be deficient and also um, calorie for calorie it's not really worth it and the guy said no absolutely not hunting is not worth it because he was with the Hadza the Hadza men would go out and hunt sometimes they wouldn't come back with the animal and he. He said, well, the women are just sitting around, you know, not wasting a lot of energy. They're picking the tubers, so they're the ones feeding the family. And so hunting is a complete waste of calories. And I got to tell you, man, my bullshit, my bullshit alert, you know, antenna just went way off. Like that to me makes zero sense.
It's crazy. I was, in, I was, uh, I visited the Hadza well, maybe half a year ago. No, a little bit more. Last year, same time, more or less, last year. And you see on, on the ground, what you see is the droppings of cows. These are the main animals that they live among because they, the neighbors, they are uh, cow uh, herders, yeah? The, the, the landscape, look, uh, it's like thorny, many thorny, uh, it's covered with thorny bush. Wow. And then you go to Ngoro Ngoro, right next to it, not far from it. I don't know if uh, people know this. This is like a, a very nice uh, game reserve, right? It's a crater. It's a huge crater. And uh, there are no food, there are no plant food in Ngoro Ngoro to speak of, but there are a lot of uh, grass and a lot of animals. And, and But they are not allowed, of course, to hunt there. They are not allowed to hunt elephants. So they go in this uh, area where really they have nothing. They just were pushed to, to that area. It's a marginal area. In a normal time, they wouldn't be there at all. And the area wouldn't look like it because it can look like it only if you don't, if you have cows <laughs> and you don't have elephants. Elephants actually create savanna. Elephant and uh, average elephant in, uh, in South Africa, uh, <clears throat> Reserve, killed about 1,600 trees a year. Wow. Just one elephant. Yeah. That's the average elephant. So they are like farmers. They clear the land. Uh, so if they're not around, you know, and they're not around where the Hadza live, the whole, uh, the whole environment is completely different. And by the way, even so, even so, this, the data that we have today show that the return, energetic return on hunting animals is, I just, I jumped, I'm just writing a paper to, or just finish it on uh, the reason for fire. So that the, the all the papers, all the old hypotheses were that fire was developed to cook uh, food. Yeah. And that was the main contribution of the fire. But really, if you look, the return on the plants is about the average return that we, the data we have from present hunter-gatherers is 14, 1,400 calories per hour of work. The return on hunting is more than 10 times that. Wow. So uh, humans with a limited budget, you know, you have to, you have a limited energetic budget. You have to spend it. It's like going in a supermarket and uh, suddenly something costs 10 times more than the other. And you, you have to build, to buy it with the same budget. Would you buy it? It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Wow. So, so my, my uh, hypothesis right now is that humans, uh, built fires to protect from predators. Because if a predator takes a prey, and they used to hunt big prey, a big prey can last a week, two weeks, three weeks, and they have to gorge on it for three weeks. 
Uh, other predators don't do it. Other predators like finish it and then, uh, you know, and they fight over it and all that stuff. And it all happens in a matter of hours. Humans sit with the prey and they have to protect it. So for three, for three weeks. So the simplest way would be to make fire. And this also will justify the cost of collecting the wood. Again, energetic cost, which are, they are, of collecting the wood. So cooking, even if the if their net return is let's say 1400 calories per hour, so cooking can contribute 20%, 30% to increase what is meager, it's a meager amount. So cooking fire going into fire, maintaining fire just for cooking, I don't think it may, does make sense in the context of having large animals as prey. Wow. That is so is fascinating. Yeah, that's so fascinating. You said two key things in there that I really want to emphasize, and this is directly you know, related to the work that you've done on trophic levels and the evolution of other species along with the humans. And first of all, you mentioned big animals. And it might be interesting to kind of talk about what big animals existed back then that don't necessarily exist now and how much bigger they were. And also, keeping an animal around for several weeks, we would think like, wow, how can you even do that? If you're, if you don't have refrigeration, how are you going to keep that good? And, and you know, that, that can be a, a good way to talk about our human evolution and things that we adapted to, to be able to handle those types of animals and eat them for several weeks. Can you talk about each one of those things? Yeah. Uh, there were, there were species of uh, elephants, for instance, uh, one that uh, died off maybe 400,000 years ago. So it was available for about 1.6 million years that was double the size of the, of the elephant that we have today. Wow. Yeah. So it weighed about 12 tons compared to about 6 tons or 8 to 12 compared to 4 to 6 tons. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of other species of large animals. Today we have only three, I think, species of mega herbivores, uh, hippopotamus, uh, rhinoceros, and elephant. I don't think there are any other. Uh, at that time, there were like nine species of, of, of hypercar, of, of uh, mega herbivores. So herbivores, over a thousand kilos are called mega herbivores. <clears throat> so the richness of species was completely different than it is today. And the size of them was also completely different. But humans hunted all sizes and they, they not only hunted large animals, but if you make, what is the relative contribution of the large animals? It's way, way over. We did a calculation like, you know, if you, you hunt one elephant of 12 tons. I mean, you can live on it for two months. Wow. Uh, now, how, how do you live on it for a month or two months? You dry, you dry the meat. And this is, by the way, another use of uh, fire that, uh, that was much more uh, energetically uh, rewarding than, than, uh, than cooking. 
because you smoke. So this is what they do today when they hunt elephants. They smoke the meat and uh, they preserve it that way. Also, we are really built to eat uh, rotten meat uh, with our uh, high acidity, high stomach acidity. We have an acidity of, uh, of uh, scavengers. So we are built to it and we wouldn't have that acidity if we needed, we didn't need it because it's very expensive to maintain and to produce energetically speaking. So, you know, that, that's it. Wow. Yeah, that's so fascinating. You talk about this a lot in the Are We Carnivores paper that you wrote, and you cite several different things as evidence that we were definitely carnivore, like weaning, um, smaller fat cells, I think is very interesting. The stomach acidity, you make a point there. Things like um, endurance running. We all know that humans are very good at endurance running. We can With other animals, it seems like there is a, a curve where they're really efficient. Some animals are faster, but they're not very good you know, moving slowly and, and vice versa. And with humans, it's more of a flat line. Like we can walk, we can jog, we can trot, we can run, we can sprint, we can do all those different things, which is super interesting. We also have, you know, these arms and thumbs and we can throw things, which is, which is amazing. And all of that as evidence to say that we did not evolve getting a main portion of our diet from plants. It had to be animals. Yeah. No, there are a lot of evidence, really. I mean, that, and there are few evidence against it. So, I mean, we will never know for sure anything in science, you know. Uh, when you talk about history, it's, it's impossible to do experiments. So, uh, so we will never be sure, 100%. But all the evidence point to that. Uh, it just so all the genes and, and the physiology, uh, the archaeology, everything, everything points to that. We were real. Uh, and also, you know, there are no predators, and there were no predators, that hunt large animals as a part-time job. I mean, this is something that you have to learn. Even lions take time to learn how to hunt. And so it just, why would we be different than other predators in that respect? So yes, we can also take uh, plants, but there's no way that plants would give us the same energetic return that we need. Yeah. Again, it's just so unifying across so many different disciplines. And this paper concludes that humans are, are pretty limited in, as far as the amount of protein that we can get. And we need to get our energy from another source, whether that's carbohydrate or fat. And it would just make so much more sense that if we're killing big animals, they have a certain uh, ratio of protein to fat, but we need to fill the rest of our calories from fat, not carbohydrate, if we can help it. Right, I mean, we have it, the animal is there. And uh, the thing with large animals is that they have more fat than smaller animals. <clears throat> and uh, there are also another type uh, that says that uh, adults have more fat than young and old. Now, hunting adults is the most surprising behavior that you can have 
from a predator. Just concentrating on adults. I mean, <clears throat> so lion hunts like the population because he is an ambush hunter. Uh, wolf is a corsil. Yeah, the one that runs, corsil. Yeah, forgot how to say the name. Anyway, uh, he hunts the old and the young because they don't run that fast. So you can get them. Humans concentrate on hunting the most dangerous, fastest, most alert, most experienced animal. So, uh, I mean, age group. And that just doesn't make sense. Unless there's a very good reason for it. And the reason that I could think of is fat. It's just that they have more fat. Wow. Normally. Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. And it, it, it's, it seems very likely that we were the ones that caused all these animals to go extinct, correct? I mean, if we were yeah, not very likely. being very careful, very likely. we could very easily overhunt them. Or, you know, if we were taking the biggest animals that could have been the females who could have been the ones reproducing. And, and, you know, now I think a lot of people understand with hunting, there's a lot of limitations. You can only hunt certain animals certain times of the year. But back then, you know, all right. these big animals are everywhere. It's open season based for all of them, and we probably did ourselves a disservice by overhunting them. Yeah, it just so happened that we concentrated on animals that uh, are that they are sensitive in this respect. Uh, large animals, you know, it tell it uh, takes an elephant like six or seven or even more years to become sexually mature. Uh, so the the whole turnover is very, very slow. It's not like cockroaches, you know. Uh, and uh, as you said, you know, when, when you when you uh, go after the uh, the females, uh, the adult females are the ones that are supposed to contribute to the growth of the of the population. And these these are your target. Yeah, it just so happened. I mean. Humans didn't mean to get them extinct. It just so happened that they specialized on them because of the fat, of the need for fat. Wow, that's so interesting. And that continued until, was it about 50,000 years ago that a lot of these species started to go extinct and we had to hunt smaller and smaller animals, which means we were getting more protein and less of the fat and thus maybe needed to do other things up to the agricultural revolution, which was about 11,000 years ago. Is that is that the timeline? Almost, but uh, I'm recently finding, and we just we published one paper about it, and we will publish uh, another one. Uh, that actually that decline in prey size started much earlier, much earlier, uh, maybe six hundred thousand years ago. <clears throat> and uh, we published a paper that we think that we hypothesized that this was the cause of human evolution. This is why we need larger brain. Uh, and this is why many other things uh, happened to us uh, physiologically and, and uh, culturally. Uh, and all of it was to adapt ourselves to hunt smaller and smaller animals. And this is a process that started much earlier than the what is now agreed upon. And this is the what's called late quaternary 
a megafauna extinction that started 100,000 years, but really 50,000 years ago. Yeah, it's actually, I, I think today that it started much earlier and uh, that it was the driver. I mean, our whole, the, the fact that we are sitting here today uh, with a brain of 1400 CC or 1300 CC, uh, so smart, uh, is that uh, we had to be smart to hunt smaller and smaller. We had to get smarter and smarter to hunt smaller and smaller uh, animals. Yeah, wow. You mentioned brain size, which I, I believe is on the decline now. We actually peaked out back in those other I days. I don't know about that... now. I don't know about now. Interesting. It was, it was in a decline. I, whether it continues, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. So besides the brain size, we do know that our physical bodies really have degenerated when we look at different skeletons from different areas and we go back to the agriculturist societies and they were very much not well. We see lots of cavities, deformities. We see that they were smaller in statue and uh, stature than the predecessors who were far healthier. Is that correct? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, as soon as they, we started to become uh, farmers, uh, the nature of the work that we do changed, and you can see it on the on the bones and on on, on all kind of uh, illnesses that uh, pathology that uh, human had. <clears throat> but I tell you, they it, take, it took them some time, and uh, they overcame it and became pretty healthy farmers. It's not that the farmers continue to be sick and 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 so so yeah it takes them some time it took them some time but uh, people were pretty um, healthy even I tell you even in Victorian times wow yeah interesting I was surprised but uh, I uh, participating in a book that uh, Tim Noakes. Uh, assemble and write about a ketogenic, ketogenic diet, I believe it is. And and, uh, and uh, yeah, he, he found that piece that actually Victorian people were pretty, pretty healthy. Interesting. Yeah. So we managed to overcome a lot of uh, problems. Wow. Uh, Naturally, I mean, without medicine. Yeah, that's so interesting. And so maybe what we have today, many of the problems today, you don't need to go back two million years to find out what the problem is. Like, uh, you know, uh, like pulfa oil, okay? I mean, they they became uh, uh, popular, what, 50, 000, 50 years ago? Right. Yeah, I mean, okay, they began to produce them maybe 100,000 years ago. But they became popular 50, 20, 20,000 years ago, 20 years ago. I can't say <laughs> sure. small numbers. Yeah. <laughs> I find it difficult to say small numbers. But uh, 20 years ago. So the the mismatch is 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 important. Uh, but uh, it may have happened, you know, very close to, to our life. Yeah, that's so interesting and probably a really good segue to your latest book. So you decided to write a book exploring the differences between our current culture and what you have learned about how we evolved. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the things that you learned when you were going through and writing that book? 
Yeah, you know, I started, actually, it's uh, based on a book that I wrote uh, quite a few years ago in Hebrew. <clears throat> and uh, now I decided to, uh, yeah, translate it to English, but it won't be the same book, but it will be based on, on that book. And actually, before I started with the paleo diet, I, uh, I was interested much more in the general mismatch between uh, our lives today and our genetic composition and our inner you know, behavior, our innate uh, tendencies. <clears throat> so what I did is I took, first of all, I took to describe the, the, the conditions. What were the basic conditions of hunter-gatherer? How, and they evolved to, to adapt to these situations. Okay, so take one, uh, the basic one, which is, there's no argument about it. They lived in small groups. Okay, so a group would be composed of several bands. So a band can be, I don't know, 20 people. So the whole group would have been several hundred people. Okay, because you need that for, for uh, reproduction. Uh, so you cannot have a small group. But they could not have been larger than several hundred. So what happens is that basically, you know everybody. Uh, that you meet from your birth, either from your birth or, or from their birth. Okay, so you know them. They know you 100%. They know your weaknesses. They know your strengths. There's no sense in presenting anything. Just that's one, one take one point. There's no sense in presenting a personality that you don't have. But today, in order to survive, you almost must develop a certain personality when you go to work, for instance. Yeah. Uh, you must wear a certain mask and a certain uh, set of clothes that will create an impression. And you are very sensitive to what impression you created here and there and there. So, and it, you know, it adds a lot of stress. A stress that uh, these people don't have because everybody knows them. They don't, they, don't any, they don't have any option to dress differently. And they don't even have any option to behave differently because they have to behave for the benefit of this small group. Otherwise, it's so apparent that they don't, that they will be kicked out. So everybody is authentic. Uh, doesn't have a lot of ego, uh, you know. So then this this kept, this thing with the small band affects a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know. Uh, uh, there is equality, for instance. This is also something that in every every mobile. Bands, okay, not, not uh, sedentary, because when it's sedentary, 
when they become sedentary, they can accumulate, uh, they can accumulate uh, things. So the inequality start to, to creep in. But when there's a band, when they're mobile, they just cannot accumulate uh, things because they're everything they have to carry. You know, there was an anthropologist that said that it was very difficult to bring them presents because they realized very quickly that presents, what do they do with the presents? They now have to carry them around. So, so it, uh, this is, uh, you know, so equality, yeah, is in our blood. I mean, this is like, we are, we want, we have to be equal. When we are not equal, we are stressed. Uh, so this being in a small group is a very, has a lot of implications. Yeah. The, the other thing that's very interesting is that you find equality and you find sharing. Okay, sharing is another very important uh, characteristics of a uh, nomad uh, hunter-gatherers. <clears throat> now, sharing, what sharing does is actually uh, lowers very substantially the stress of getting your food because somebody will get it. Now, you have to, and you have to assume that they were living, and, and this is also uh, quite accepted, that they were living in uh, conditions where they could always get something. Really, uh, hunter-gatherer were growing, not seeing poor people. They, they, he, did, he doesn't know what poor people look like. He just saw people that get everything that they need and shared. In other words, the, the, the community or the society, small society in this case, will never leave anybody uh, to suffer. It's just here, you can walk on the street and there's a homeless sitting on the other side of the street. He suffers for sure, but you know, what can you do? So, so today your kids, when they walk on the street, they see the homeless and they see people su suffer and they hear about people hungry. And so they're already stressed that they will be able to support themselves. And of course, now, nowadays they're supporting themselves at the same level as their parents or their friends. That's another uh, source of stress. So the, the whole structure of the living uh, has a lot of implications about the way that they lived and, and the differences uh, between what, how they live and how we live. For instance, take this thing that I studied economy, economics. So the basic assumption of economics is that people always want more. This is Adam Smith, right? This is it. This is the otherwise economy won't move. But if you look around, you see that there is need for a lot of advertising to entice us to consume more. Otherwise, there would be advertising. And a lot of fashion, the whole thing of fashion, 
What is fashion? Fashion is a mechanism that entices us to buy more because it changes, right? So your car now is out of fashion. It used to be that your clothes were out of fashion. So this is like a $50 expense. But the car, which is what? I don't know, $10, $20,000 expense, also getting out of fashion. So furniture, furniture is fashion. So without this fashion and without this advertising, I'm not sure that people would have wanted more that much. So you live in a, in a society that is completely different than your core uh, you know core uh, the basic basic uh, setup that uh, your genes provide. Yeah. It's absolutely astounding. You mentioned implications, and boy, are there some crazy implications when you really sit down and think about this. You're right. Like with the capitalist society, we need to have advertising so that you go out and buy more and more and more stuff. The stuff accumulates. You you have no place to put it, so it just you know you need you need bigger houses, you need bigger cars, you need storage spaces around where I live are huge, so people rent other garages to stick more of their stuff that they don't even hardly see or use or get any utility out of it's pretty remarkable and and you know you think about like okay if i if i'm in a if i'm in a hunter gatherer society and i'm living off the land it's like you said i'm only taking what the land is giving me i don't want any more i don't need any more it makes the most sense to grab an animal share it with these people because today i might have got a deer tomorrow you might get something else that you would then share with me and the whole society thrives there's no need for religion there's no need for land grabs there's no need to protect those things you you talked about like accumulating stuff if i'm accumulating something I now have, uh, you know, I've got something that I have to protect. And so I need a government to distribute it. I need soldiers to fight over it. Like the, the, all of what we think of as civilization all goes back to that, that that one message. We are so different than we used to be. Yeah. Take another thing. For instance, the hunter-gatherer wakes up in the morning and he goes hunting and he's successful or unsuccessful, probably successful sometimes. So he finished the job. He's, he's got his uh, uh, prey. He brings it to the to the tent, to the camp. Everybody is happy, and that's it. Today, there are no such projects. I mean, a project today takes years. Or sometimes when you work in a factory, you don't even see the final product. You just work every day. You produce a part of a product, and uh, you don't even see what the product is, and you don't have the feeling that you produce something that's you you know used by by the community. You don't get the feedback from the community about what you produce for them. The maximum that you get is you get the feedback from the family when you bring the salary once a month. Uh, and that's another thing, you know. You, today, the 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 uh, group that you relate to is large and small. In other words, it's small because it's a family compared to a, a group uh, band of twenty people or so. 
<laughs> and uh, but it's also too large because now you are involved in the life of the entire world. Okay, because if you don't, if you if you keep using plastics, uh, you know the world will do that, and if you keep using fuel, the world will be there. So now you have all the world on your shoulders as well. Uh, so it's completely different. So there's so many sources of stress that uh, we have today that hunter-gatherers didn't have. That I must tell you that I'm, I'm in awe of our ability to actually function in a, in an environment that is so completely different. Wow. It is crazy yeah. to contemplate that we have changed so much, but yeah, we are still able to, you know, live in this completely modified environment. I'm, I'm thinking like during the pandemic, I really got sucked into the news cycle and learning about what was going on around the world and, you know, the case counts in India or, you know, the political unrest at the Capitol. And it, it, it gets so overwhelming. It really affected my life and my anxiety was way higher. And every time I just walked outside my neighborhood that I've been for many, many years and I've gotten to know this one place, everything is fine. You get to know the birds and the ducks and the way the plants change during the different seasons and the weather patterns. You get so much more in tune to that. But then if you if you pay attention to this news cycle, you, you get completely overloaded and stressed out about things that might be important but will never impact your life. Yeah, and you will not have any any way of influencing. I mean, look, in Israel, we live in a, the the politics is much more, uh, it has much more uh, effect on your life, on your real life. You either have a war or you don't have a war, or you have peace or you don't have peace. Uh, so everything is much more, uh, you know, uh, how should I say, intensive, yeah? But then again, you know, what can you do? You, there's not much you can do. You can either, you vote once every, in theory, every four years, but we have like elections every year now. But so that's it, you go, you vote. All the rest of the time, you just spend, uh, you know, uh, criticizing and uh, trying to, to convince your friends about one thing or the other. And it, that don't help either because they, they can do nothing. So, yeah, you spend a lot of time agonizing about things that you cannot do anything about. That's right. And uh, that doesn't happen in hunter society. Wow. Do they have any concept of time the way that we think of time? That's that's another thing. Yeah. They have different they have different concept. They've uh, they don't really uh, they uh, they're not stressed about time. They don't measure time. You know by the way, the hunter gatherers don't have numbers. Uh, about four, uh, sometimes even two. Wow. It was, they, yeah, they don't count. They don't count. They don't say, I saw 15 GNU over there. They say many. There are many GNUs. And that's it. And uh, same goes for time. They don't, they don't really, yeah, it was long ago. Uh, and that's it. They don't care whether it was months ago 
two months ago, a week ago. No, it's long ago, long time ago. Uh, so the, the, sure, the, 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 they're so relaxed. I mean, once you had your prey and you're eating, there are no worries. You don't need to worry. You don't pay tax. You don't, there's no, there's nothing, nothing to worry about. These are happy people. All the, and I goes into that in the book, all the reports that uh, people who met them uh, reported, uh, all the Westerners were surprised how happy they are. Uh, yeah, they were happy. Uh, Western Price is good. If you Have you read the book? Absolutely, so good. Yeah, so here he describes them. He describes all these tribes and how healthy they are and how happy they are and how wholesome they are and that there's no crime and uh, that's it. And this is what we evolved to live. This is the life that we evolved to live. And today we live in completely different uh, circumstances. Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting to contemplate. And I just, you hear those stories of like, we don't know exactly how old some of these people are. We think they're 120, 130 in some cases. And like you said, healthy dancing, singing, like, like way past the age of maturity to be able to have more kids. We have, uh, you know, the grandmother theory is so interesting that we have value in the elderly because they help the tribe. They help pass on wisdom. They help teach. There's so many other things that rewards, you know, us to be able to age far past when we can even have kids. Yeah. This is, you know, that they die young is another myth Uh, because they mix they make some statistics uh, like the life expectancy. Yeah, life expectancy was lower than ours because uh, a lot of babies died. Yeah. So when you do the average on every baby that died, you need you need somebody else to go to 70 in order to have an average of 35. Yep. And a lot of them did go to 70, uh, even, even 80. And then, uh, of course, you don't have any antibiotics, etc. Uh, so, yeah, they were old, and the the humans actually uh, evolved to be older than other animals. Our size, uh, the hunter hunter gets to the peak of his ability at the age of forty, because you need a lot of experience. Now, he, now the group needs him because he actually supports all the small and women that don't hunt. So he needs to hunt a surplus. And uh, actually, a hunter is able to support himself or, or just get enough food for himself at the age of 20. So until then, he, get, he needs to get supported. Wow. And so you need a lot of people, a lot of people above 40 to support the group. So groups that didn't have people above 40 didn't survive. And this is evolution. 
Yeah, that's just, it's so fascinating. So we talked about the mismatch and, and I love it. You've got 15 different things listed here, how we were and how we actually are today with our modern conditions and how different they are. Absolutely just the, the exact opposite. The thing that I really love as far as the concept of your book is the what to do. So as you're saying, mm-hmm. you know, these people lived in small groups and they didn't worry too much and they just took what they needed from the land. They didn't have possessions. Like I yearn for that. That sounds amazing. <laughs> However, it's 2022 and I'm still part of 2022. And as much as I want to go, you know, find my nearest cave and, you know, grab 150 of my friends to go kind of live in the cave with me, uh, we have to be a part of this modern environment. So how can we take that information of the way we adapted and the way we evolved and use that in a modern environment today to be able to reduce some of those stresses that you mentioned? Right, right. Of course, nobody wants to go back. Even if I could, I don't think I would like to go back uh, uh, to live with the Hadza. I mean, so... What would we do without our iPhones? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the fact that I managed to retire at 52 is also uh, due to uh, uh, modern life, you know, modern economy. So I can't uh, go against it. I actually enjoyed it a lot. Uh, no, no, but but in order to get the stress down, what do you do? <clears throat> so I think that first of all, first and foremost, be aware. Be aware of your core. Be aware that many of the things that cause you stress, you are not, it's not because of you, it's because of all of us, because how we evolved. Okay. So don't blame yourself too much for your inabilities. Uh, uh, a lot of people have ADD. I used to have ADD. Uh, ADD is a good thing to have if you hunt together, but it's a bad thing to have if you work in industrial environment. So this is it. It's not your fault. Uh, this is the first. The first thing is to be aware. And in order to be aware, you need to learn a little bit about what hunter-gatherers were, how they live. So this is the first thing, be aware. You know, there's, a, there's an interesting situation in the Bible when uh, God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the knowledge tree, right? He said, you will, you will uh, uh, get killed if you do. And they did, but he didn't kill them. So what happened to them after they ate from the knowledge tree? The first thing that's written is that they became aware that they are naked. So awareness is the most important aspect of knowledge. So you have knowledge and you can become aware of your situation. That's the first thing. The second is to cultivate a small community. Not too large, not too large. I tell you, I have friends. I don't think they will listen to this uh, podcast, so I can tell you. Uh, most of them are quite boring, actually. <laughs> I mean, they are, they are nice people and they're intelligent people, but each one has his small, you know, job, uh, his area. Each one is more interested in himself than anything else which is natural. And you don't get the 
deep philosophical discussions in every meeting. Ah, but I don't care. I say, I say, I want that community. I have, I have like maybe six or seven uh, couples that we are sticking together. We celebrate our birthdays and uh, we are, uh, you know, the birth of the, now the grandchildren used to be the children and uh, we stick together. And I cultivate, I cultivate this, although they are not as exciting to me as other people uh, that I could meet, I still make sure that we meet often enough to maintain the sense of community. So this is one very, very important. Uh, if you don't have it, put your eyes and start to organize one. You can do a run. Uh, I don't want to go into too practical. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't even know how to do it. But but this is the the principle. The other thing is uh, we didn't discuss it that much, but equality and autonomy are very very important very important in, in hunter-gatherers. And it's crazy, how can you maintain equality, sharing and autonomy at the same time? But they can. And sharing caused that, that thing because they have to share. So nobody's doing you any favor. You don't owe favors to others. So you can maintain your autonomy. And I found that I have a, you know, touch wood, very happy marriage life. And I found that the happy marriage life is because I allow my wife an autonomy and I maintain my autonomy. So the more autonomy we have, the, the happier life we have together. I make sure that my wife has an autonomy. I make sure that she develops as much as she can. And if she wants to go studies, I will do anything to, to, to make sure that she, that she can. I actually, my, my uh, job is to develop, uh, make, create the conditions to, for my wife to, de to develop her potential. And her job, of course, is the same. So yeah, develop the autonomy of, of the friends of your, uh, you know, uh, the people around you. By the way, <clears throat> I'll just tell you, it's uh, unbelievable the amount of autonomy that hunter-gatherers provide to their children. In India, uh, uh, you know, governments like to have uh, nobody, nobody hunter-gatherer sit in the same place. They don't like them to go around too much. So they build the houses for them, or like a compound. And now that's this uh, a tribe, I forgot the name, lives in that compound. Uh, so now they came to this, uh, first of all, they wanted to appoint a, 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 like head of the, of the group, but they don't listen to heads. They don't want heads. Nobody wants to be a head. But anyway, they, they had to appoint one. So they said, you are the one. Okay. So now they told him, okay, we, look, we built a school. Your kids have to go to school. And he said, I, how can I tell them to go to school? He said, you go and tell them to go to school. He said, I don't know, they won't go. <laughs> and that's what happened. The kids don't go to school. He can't tell them to go to school. They brought some building material and they said that there was some walking between the, the, the road 
and the compound. So they said, look, get all your people together to carry the building material from the road to your compound because we need to clean, we need to, you know, to, to build there. And, and when the time came, he was there alone. And they said, what are you doing here alone? He said, I, I couldn't tell them to come. He's no authority over there. Nobody is telling nobody anything. So that's why how autonomy is important and how uh, authority is completely distrusted. So I would say the third thing, and this is of course more, most difficult, more difficult than anything else, is try to get away from authoritarian situations, from from author, from uh, working, for instance, in big organizations, work in small organizations that you know each other, and and the the orders don't come from uh, somewhere where you don't even know where it is and who is giving the orders. Yeah, at least if you work in small companies. You know the owner, you know, or, or the manager, and you know that he can decide and he is responsible to you. So his decisions are also uh, taken when he, he understands that they have an effect on you. So they're much more uh, personal. So the, that, that's the other stairs. Uh, try to stay away from authoritarian uh, as much as you can, of course. Yeah. Of course, it's not always possible. Uh, what else do I have here? Yeah, okay, this is a uh, break the task to short term step. That's that's a comment. Uh, the other thing, ah, that's that's important. Be spontaneous. Now, spontaneity is very, very is is, is unbelievable source of happiness. Uh, <clears throat> of course, hunter gatherers are spontaneous. I mean, they wake up in the morning. They don't go hunting every day. They don't go even hunting every second day. Or sometimes they'll go for a week, and then two weeks they won't go. So they are very spontaneous. Uh, and I, I try it on myself. Whenever I, I do something spontaneous, I enjoy it. I just enjoy it because it wasn't planned. Okay, of course, there is a need for planning sometimes. And spontaneous also is a relative situation. You can uh, be spontaneous for next hour or say that next month you're going uh, to, to a trip or something or building something or doing something. So spontaneity actually emphasize your autonomy if you think about it. Yeah, that makes a and lot you, of sense. Yeah, you exercise your autonomy. You feel a sense of autonomy. Uh, when you're spontaneous, normally also you're spontaneous on short-term projects. So that's that's another thing, yeah, that gives you results very quickly. Wow. So you don't spontaneously go to write a book. You go, but you go spontaneously to to do something. Yeah. To go have a fire camp in in, in, in on the beach with your wife, whatever. Wow. So that's that's another. Uh, advice that bring us closer to our core. Yeah, the other thing that I that I uh, didn't touch on is the case of uh, risk. 
Okay, hunter-gatherers have risks in our lives, right? They can be eaten by a lion. They can be wounded, and a wound in these conditions uh, can be fatal, much, much more than today. So yes, they have, they have a risk. But because they have risk, they learn how to cope with it. In other words, not learn, but also evolve to cope with it. We have a risk of uh, dying every minute, but we don't really think of it. We don't, we don't dwell on it. It's not, it's not something that uh, affects our behavior or our feeling of happiness. <clears throat> but today, we have a different problem, is that we think that we can reduce risk. So if only we have, if only we know about this, a right expert in something, yeah, we could solve that problem. The only problem is that we don't know. So we go to the internet and we look and we don't find, and we find too many things. But we know in the back of our mind, not in only in the back of our mind, that there is a solution somewhere, must be, yeah? Sometimes there isn't, but we still think there is. I mean, we more don't know than we know. Yep. You have to accept that we don't know. And, and this, this will reduce a lot of our stress. You have to accept, accept risk and accept uh, you know, imperfect knowledge. Yeah. And so, so the ability to reduce risk. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> this is something also that doesn't bother hunter-gatherers because they don't know, they know for sure that they don't know how to reduce risk. They just accept it. They know it. But there's nobody else that knows. That's what, whatever they know, they know. Of course, they act to reduce risk. They, go, they don't go where the lions uh, live. Uh, so they know how to reduce risk to the extent that they know. But they don't think that they could know more. Yeah. Yeah, that's such an interesting <laughs> point. Wow. Yeah. Well, okay. So I'm very, very, very much looking forward to this book coming out in English. And if it doesn't, I'm going to start studying Hebrew. <laughs> I'll have to learn uh, the language uh, so I could read it. It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, and well, I, no, it will come. It will come out. It will come out. Great. Okay, great. I won't study my Hebrew lessons just yet. <laughs> um, what, what an amazing way to look at things and to understand the way we've evolved to be aware, like you said, of, of what that was like and, and how to make adjustments for today's day and age. It's, it's very practical, and I really appreciate how you've outlined all of that. This has been another amazing conversation. I absolutely love spending time with you and learning from you. Where can people go to find you and connect with you and connect with your work? Uh, most of my activity, which is not very high, is in Twitter today. So apart from the blogs that you mentioned, I, I'm in Twitter. And uh, that's the best way to contact me as well. Great. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah. 
Yeah. This is where I go. Okay, great. Well, we will link that in the show notes. Dr. Mickey Bendor, like I said, such an honor to talk to you again. I I, I feel like I try mm. to study and prepare for these conversations, and I always learn a whole bunch of stuff that I was not expecting. And I just, I really appreciate that about you. I appreciate that you left a career that was unfulfilling to explore some of this stuff, and you're bringing this research out in a way that's really understandable and practical. So thank you so very much for everything that you do, and thank you for spending time with us today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. My pleasure. Awesome. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body. Thank you again so very much for continuing to listen to and support Boundless Body Radio. This little passion project that we started almost two years ago just continues to steadily grow. We are reaching more people than ever, and we keep receiving so many inspirational and amazing messages from you. We see it in all the reviews that we get, and we really appreciate that. So thank you so very much for that. We love understanding which guests you really connect with and which content you really appreciate the most. We wanted to take a second also to give a huge shout out to our amazing guests Yes, we love the people that we've been able to host and all their amazing content in these awesome conversations. And we have to say in the pipeline, we already have lots of great episodes that will be coming to you soon and lots of great guests. Some will be new to the show and others will be familiar to you if you have been listening to our show for a while. So look forward to that. On our website, which is myboundlessbody.com, we are still running a lot of the same offers that we have been running for the last few months. These offers are complimentary, and we've really had a great time connecting with people all over the world who are taking advantage of these. So if you go to our website, which again is myboundlessbody.com, on the main page, you'll find a button that says book now. You can book either a functional movement screen, which is a movement screening tool used to evaluate movement patterns to optimize mobility, fitness, and injury prevention. We do that virtually through Zoom with a bit of creativity. You can book that session, which takes about 30 minutes and is complimentary. You can also see another booking for a 30-minute consultation with us where we can really chat about anything that you like. We can talk about fitness or nutrition or help you come up with a plan for you to be able to reach your goals. As always, it really helps us grow if you leave us a rating and review. So please be sure to go to Apple, leave us a five-star rating and review. And thank you, as always, for listening to Boundless Body Radio.